So I want to thank everybody for coming. Welcome to this session. This is a joint session with the Social Theory and Religion Cluster and the Religion and Ecology Group. So before we get started, I did want to announce um, we do have a change to the session. Um, Jane Bennett was unable to join us, so she won't be up here on the panel. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about how we're going to structure the session, just so that you know what to anticipate. Um, our first presenter will give an introduction to Latour's uh, Gifford Lectures and the broader context in which those lectures take place in. And then each of our panelists will talk for 15 minutes. And after that, we'll open up uh, the floor for audience questions and discussion among the panelists. So if you can please hold your questions until that point, that's the way we're going to do it. So the first hour will be presentations and then more of an interactive session at that point. So I'm going to start by introducing our panelists today. Adrian Ivakiv is professor of environmental thought and culture at the University of Vermont's Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources. His research focuses at the intersections of ecology, culture, identity, religion, media, and the creative arts. His publications include Claiming Sacred Ground, Pilgrims and Politics at Glastonbury and Sedona, and Ecologies of the Moving Image, Cinema, Affect, Nature. Daniel Dudney is an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. His books include Bounding Power, Republican Security Theory from the Polis to the Global Village, Princeton University Press, and the edited volume Contested Ground, Security and Conflict in the New Environmental Politics. Timothy Morton is Rita Shea Guffey Chair in English at Rice University. He is the author of Hyperobjects, Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World, Minnesota, Realist Magic, Objects, Ontology, Causality, Causality, Open Humanities Press, and The Ecological Thought, Harvard, Ecology Without Nature, also from Harvard, seven other books, and 90 essays on philosophy, ecology, literature, food, and music. He blogs regularly at www.ecologywithoutnature.blogspot.com. William Connolly is professor at Johns Hopkins, where he teaches political theory. His recent books include Capitalism and Christianity, American Style, Duke 2008, A World of Becoming, Duke 2011, and The Fragility of Things, Self-Organizing Processes, Neoliberal Fantasies, Democratic Activism, Duke 2013. Bron Taylor is Professor of Religion and Environmental Ethics at the University of Florida and a Fellow of the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. He edited the award-winning Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature and has produced five other books, including Dark Green Religion, Nature Spirituality and the Planetary Future, Avatar and Nature Spirituality, and Ecological Resistance Movements. He is also the founder of the International Society for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, and its affiliated journal for the study of religion, nature, and culture, which he edits. So now we'll get started with Adrian Ivakiv, Overview and Context. Thanks very much, Sarah. Okay. 
And thank you also to Ipsita Chatterjee, Randall Stiers, and all the others, uh, Robert Puckett, and all the others who've made this panel possible, and to the panelists especially for uh, coming out of their way to join us here today. So I'm just going to say a few things about Bruno Latour and the context for this panel, which is essentially a series of responses to Latour's Gifford lectures, which he gave earlier this year in February in Edinburgh. Bruno Latour is best known for his work in science studies, or STS, Science and Technology Studies, in works like Laboratory Life and Science in Action, and for developing the research program known as Actor Network Theory. For some, he is better known for having played a role in the so-called science wars of the 1990s, conflicts pitting scientific realists like Alan Sokol, Paul Gross, Norman Levitt, and Jean Bricmont, against a series of enemies that they variously identified as social constructivists, postmodern relativists, and the academic left. The deep irony for Latour was that he has been so adamant in recognizing the power of science and had long been criticized by many of his STS peers for leaning over backwards to welcome nature back into the social that they studied. The key point here is that what Latour recognizes is not the power of science to access reality or nature directly through objective reason, experience, or the scientific method, or something else pure and mysterious, but rather the power of science to forge the kinds of mediations and translations that build powerful powerfully robust and durable networks of relationality between humans and the non-human world. It's this that for Latour constitutes the real distinctiveness of science. Through its many interventions and its complex practices, science enrolls the world in so many ways so that that world can respond to it. It is this that gives us, its beneficiaries, an access to reality that other modes of existence may not have, though that's a contested matter to be decided. And it is precisely those mediations, what science does, that count, not its claims about reason, objectivity, or anything else. The correct question to ask for Latour is not, is it real or is it a construction, but rather how and through what mediators is it constructed? How does the construction change each of the actors involved and how well, how durably and, and lastingly is it constructed? And for the word construction, he's substituted a variety of others, fabrication, installation, and, and several others. Though he prefers to call himself an anthropologist of not only science but of modernity or a mysterious people that he sometimes calls the moderns, there's a case to be made that Latour has latterly become something of a poet and raps rhapsodist of science or at least of ecology and certainly of Gaia. Which brings us to the Gifford Lectures. These took place in February in Edinburgh under the provocative title, Facing Gaia, Six Lectures on the Political Theology of Nature. 
To understand these lectures, one needs a grasp of the project Latour had been, has been pursuing for the last quarter century or so, which he has most recently called an inquiry into modes of existence. This European Union-supported project, now a 500-page book as well as a, a labyrinthine and interactive website full of digressive elaborations and comments and promises of more public ventures, attempts to create an anthropology of the moderns, which would also be a comparative anthropology of not just the way modernity has tried to access the world, but of all the other possible ways, which gives you a sense of the ambition of the project. In place of the binaries that have done this work up to now, mind and matter, subject and object, nature and society, science and politics, reason and faith, or reason and emotion, facts and values, truth and perception, and so on, Latour proposes a philosophical anthropology that pays attention not to what is claimed by any regime of truth or mode of existence, but to what is done by it, with it, and through it. Latour reveals himself to be dedicated to undoing the bifurcation of nature that Alfred North Whitehead criticized over a hundred years ago. The bifurcation between the primary qualities that science takes as the essence and reality of a thing and the secondary qualities that are epiphenomena introduced by perception, experiential oddities that clutter the landscape of reality with their messiness and undecidability. If we are to overcome this bifurcation for Latour and his colleague Isabel Stengers, it is through a comparative anthropology of the different natural cultural collectives the universe has been assembling for at least as long as we have been here, whoever we take ourselves to be. Such a comparative anthropology would begin by asking a whole set of different questions about the world or worlds that have been constructed all around us. Questions such as, what sort of people are they? People, after all, being products of formations in which personhood or subjecthood is recognized. What are the entities under which they assemble? To what do they ascribe their assembly as a people? And how do they distribute the agencies making up the cosmos? Latour's approach to this challenge takes as a precondition that we live in perilous and indeed precarious times, times when scientists evoke a looming climate catastrophe while others ask them, but why should we trust you any more than anyone else? Latour's inquiry is intended to answer this question in the only way that is admissible once the starting points are shifted toward a neutral ground outside the parameters of the sciences themselves. The answer is always look to what they do. Look to how they make their world and how we make ours. Compare on the basis of what is made and what we might make together. Through the mediations we might come up with in the diplomatic or the cosmopolitical project that lies ahead of us. Gaia for Latour is not a ready-made superorganism, nor anything unified, universal, indisputable, and indefeasible. She is not a sovereign power lording it over us. Gaia is not nature itself, which Latour argues is as profoundly religious a concept as any. 
nor is she the environment as if there were a subject, say humanity, that pre-existed its insertion into this natural something that envelops and environs us. There is no harmony to be found with Gaia. Instead, Gaia is a project to be composed carefully by the agencies that might allow for its composition or might simply resist it. We, if there is a we, if we are a we, might be among those agencies. In the era increasingly known as the Anthropocene, humanity is certainly one and many of those agencies, fully entangled with so many others, even if we humans have never ourselves been unified, let alone modern, or secular, for that matter. And there's an undercurrent in Latour's more recent writings about religion since his famous 1991 book, We Have Never Been Modern, that could be summarized in the phrase, we have never been secular. Latour refers in the Gifford Lectures to the cosmopolitical project as an experiment in demogenesis, an attempt to create a people and a body politic out of the many who confront each other in the wake of the Anthropocene. These people might include the human as well as the animate, the organic, the technological, the fantastic, and so many others. All of those agents formerly called objects alongside all those formerly called subjects. The great challenge for this project is how does one conduct diplomacy with things that don't speak or at least not in a language known to the parliaments of the moderns or of the never-been moderns. How can we envision a, a diplomacy, a messy and rambunctious parliament, to use Latour's words, that would translate the languages spoken by all the entities of Gaia? Latour's responses here have been suggestive rather than comprehensive. They would surely include the tools and practices of scientists, the monitoring instruments, observation stations, expeditions, databases, graphs, models, standards, formats and formulas, disputation procedures, and all the rest. Science, he writes, is the new aesthetics able to render us sensible to where we are standing. But he suggests a role for artists as well. And here, I should mention that this coming week features the premiere of his theatrical work, Gaia, a Climate Change Tragic Comedy, and of the Gaia Global Circus Project that it's emerging out of. He also suggests a role for religion or activities that clearly resemble the religious and that include the rituals and ceremonies that could establish a new people and a new earth to come, to use Deleuze and Guattari's words, whom he sometimes cites. The rituals to be imagined, he writes, might not fill the churches, but they will shake the scientific disciplines quite a lot and extract from ethnography a rich lore of practices. Religion figures in this project profoundly because it is not about information or belief, but transformation and metamorphosis. At least that is Latour's argument. What sorts of transformations are we in need of if this collective venture of an earth, earthbound collectivity is to proceed forward? 
what kinds of agents are to be appealed to under whose jurisdiction we might gather, what sorts of rights, rituals, and cultic practices would guarantee the lines of communication and translation that could make this collectivity robust and peaceable. There are those critics who worry about what would happen if we opened our democratic arms to those trillions of others, the non-humans, the things themselves, the objects, or those formerly known as objects. Democracy, they suggest, is to be hoarded for those who alone deserve it. Democracy, others cry, is just too painfully slow with humans, let alone with others. It's not up to the task. I look to the panelists to shed light on whether we should and how we might answer these questions. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Our next presentation will be Daniel Dudney on reflections on Gaian planetary civic religion. So sorry about that. Got our order wrong. Our next presentation will be Timothy Morton, Secret Agents of Gaia. When you look for Gaia, you won't find her, or him, or it. This gender ambiguity is a crucial dimension of Gaia's hiddenness. When you look for Gaia's sentience, you won't find it, nor will you not find it. When you look for a component of Gaia, you will find more parts than there are holes. You will find a meadow. You will find a small region of the meadow. You will find a family of shrews. You will find a small shrew-like creature. You will find hairs on her back. You will find microbes living on those hairs. You will find viral symbionts in her DNA. When you look for Gaia, you won't find laws that are independent and inflexible. You will find path-dependent laws. They evolved as things evolved. When you look for Gaia, you won't find nature. But when you look, you won't find absolutely nothing. You will instead find a tricksy nothingness, a phenomenon that after the forthcoming work of Brian Masumi, I'm going to call nihilesque. You will find something like an android who passes your Turing test, yet you remain suspicious. You will find something like a cat who bites you, yet does not bite you. You will find not an in in inert circle, but a circling, a looping, something trickily uroboric. The abiding lesson of Cartesian reason is that personhood is being paranoid that you might not be one. Maybe I am a puppet of forces beyond my control. Gaia is personal insofar as personhood outstrips its determinants, yet is to be found nowhere else. A person is a secret agent. Gaia is a secret agent made of other secret agents. Why secret? The agents are secret insofar as they just operate, execute, carry out their procedures, then we notice them. We are in the same position in relation to ecological awareness as the person who is putting up a picture. She's hammering away when suddenly the hammer bangs her thumb. Ouch! Suddenly she notices the hammer. There we were, starting the engines of our cars, shoveling coal into steam engines when suddenly, whoa, we started an entirely new geological period. Human history intersected decisively with geological time behind our backs. This is why the term Anthropocene is in fact the fully anti-anthropocentric term. 
There is nothing self-serving about it at all. We did it. We caused global warming, not starfish, not wild boars, not myrtle trees. What we are, thank you for laughing. What we are undoing by thinking the Anthropocene is a disturbing upgrade of the terms, un, what, what we are undergoing, I'm sorry, undergoing by thinking the Anthropocene is a disturbing upgrade of the term species. Dead on arrival in the biological operating theater of the 19th century, the concept of species was fascinatingly deconstructed by Darwin. If only it had recourse to emoticons, a wink at the end of the title would have conveyed his message. There are no species and they have no origin. Species is now best thought not as a constantly present metaphysical category of dubious import that subtends the appearances of actually existing life forms. Species is now best thought as what I've called a hyperobject, a massively distributed entity like the sum total of every single shoveling of coal into a steam engine, every single turning of the key in the car ignition. We ourselves, we humans, we are also a secret agent, secret even to ourselves. I'm happy Bruno Latour is happy to use the term Anthropocene, and Latour in turn allows Gaia to be secret in this sense against the fashion for visualizing entities at that scale in a spherical fashion. Indeed, he sees attempts such as Sloterdijk's Spheres project as a desperate disavowal of that secrecy, the secrecy of a massively distributed gigantic thing spread through time and space whose local manifestations never quite sum to it, a thing that I now call a hyperobject. Thus, Gaia brings an end to the world as an englobing and encompassing sphere, and instead we're left with shreds of evidence of the networked causalities operating inside and around and because of and despite us in a fashion that is anything but smooth, symmetrical, harmonious, and spherical. But there is an even deeper secrecy, an inviolable, irreducible secrecy that is the possibility condition for the kind of secrecy I've been talking about so far. This is because of the nothingness, the nihilesque I started to talk about, that is a symptom of the irreducible gap between what a thing is and how it appears, the awareness of which marks the beginning of philosophy in the Anthropocene, the moment of Hume and Kant in whose shockwave we find ourselves. Consider a raindrop. It's wet, small, round, it's raindroppy. It's not gumdroppy, I'm afraid. It is indeed a raindrop we are feeling, thinking, measuring, but these things are raindrop phenomena, raindrop data, not the actual raindrop. This is Kant's own example from the first section of the first critique. The raindrop is secret, even from itself. Imagine the raindrop is sentient. Imagine it goes on Oprah and tells you all about itself. What it tells you is not the raindrop, more raindrop data. Imagine I study every aspect of the raindrop. All the data I collect is not the raindrop. Imagine the raindrop in every single possible part of a phase space of raindrop actions. This imagining is not the raindrop, and so on and so on ad infinitum. The gap is irreducible. There is no dotted line on a thing and a little picture of scissors saying cut here to allow us conveniently to separate the phenomenon from the thing. Philosophy must then cease to be in the business of making scissors and instructions for cutting appearance from reality. Philosophy must instead become a way to make Benadryl-like substances that will allow one to tolerate the alterity deep buried in the heart of things. I see Latour's procedure in the Gifford Lectures as a gradual, very finely quantized set of moves towards the thought of Gaia.
Latour makes these moves adhering to the dominant ideal, epistemology-centric way of proceeding in modernity, along the lines of the slow boiling of the hapless and ever-tolerant frog, the frog in this case being the scientific mind, in particular of the humanist and even of the post-humanist. Some of us have been caught with our post-human pants down at the very moment at which cultures, politics and science demand a rethinking of the category of the human in the guise of the Anthropocene. The pervasive and knee-jerk reaction is to hit the delete button on this thought, to go hell for leather against the so-called Anthropos of the Anthropocene. You see, we need to be sneaky to think such things well. We need to be playful. Indeed, there is a deep reason for this, not just to do with the pragmatics of reshaping sclerotic modern intellectual traditions, a task akin to fouling up the engines on the Titanic before she hits the iceberg. Let's consider this deep reason for a moment. With what logic can Gaia be thought, or is Gaia a wholly alogical concept? Is it possible that an ecological age is not, in fact, logical at all? That the last 2,000 years plus of Western logic are finally unable to cope with what the long trajectory of Western agricultural logistics, whence the agricultural revolution, whence the Anthropocene, have unleashed? What is required is a logic whereby things can be what they seem and not what they seem at the same time. What we need is a logic of play. The same logic my cat uses when he gives me a nip. As Gregory Bateson argues, the nip says this is a bite and this is not a bite at the same time. Cats know about negation, apparently. I would be happy to have cats write the logic that underwrites the age of Gaia, which is the consequence of the creeping awareness that we have entered the Anthropocene. We need this logic because Gaia is not a holistic being. Pieces of Gaia are not Gaia flagrantly defying the hysterical rule that one can't have sets whose members are not members of them. The good news is that if one makes a rule that prevents such sets from forming, or a meta-language, say, that prevents sentences from forming that have similarly recursive properties, sentences such as this sentence is false, the very brittleness of the rule invites a fatally undermining assault from viral sentences that are even more tightly, loopily self-referential. Why? Why the resilience of self-contradictory loopy sentences such as this sentence is false or the girdle sentence, this sentence cannot be proved, a sentence moreover that must, repeat must, exist within the rigidity of the Principia Mathematica in order to guarantee its very ability to prove axioms. Because I shall argue, things are agential because they play. Sentences that can self-contradict are very like viruses, just as viruses are very like, but not quite like, the single-celled life forms of whom they are the parasites. There is an irreducible play element in reality, and therein lies the secrecy of the secret agents. Agents act without needing to be pushed around by other agents. A good thing, too, unless we want a prime mover. Agents can act because there is a play within any agent between what it is and how it appears, an irreducible gap that cannot be located anywhere on its phenomenally given surface. This gap is like the twist in a Mobius strip. It's everywhere. A thing curls and twists all by itself, warping itself into contradiction without the need of an external force. We can now observe this in very cold, very isolated objects, objects that are nevertheless far larger than the normative scale on which quantum theoretical phenomena used to be said to be confined, objects such as a tiny tuning fork 30 microns long. 
The fork vibrates and not vibrates at the same time. The fork plays. Logic needs to accept playfulness because sentences can be playful because things are playful, which is a way of saying that they are lively in Jane Bennett's terms. Hello, Jane, who isn't here? This liveliness goes all the way down inside them despite their apparent coherence. There is nothing intrinsically human about being able to play or self-reflect or self-refer or twist in weird dance moves. Indeed, when humans do this kind of thing, are they not being thing-like? The best of bees doesn't follow an algorithm without deviating like a totally programmed machine. Neither does a machine. Neither does an algorithm, for that matter. Claiming that Marx didn't really mean it, that he was really referring to the mechanized plight of the workers, somehow doesn't make it better. It's like the racist who claims that he was just joking. The terms of the metaphor, if metaphor it is, are deeply anthropocentric insofar as they envision a special thing that humans do, create their own environment. But we have seen how even spoons can do that, not just humans, apes, mammals, plants, or for that matter, the game of life. They can do that because they are secret agents, because they play and hide. No wonder a certain kind of know-it-all Hegelian materialism that likes to quote Marx on this precise point has terrible trouble with Latour and object orientation. We are a funny bunch, us lot, the ones in the Kantian shockwave, which is simultaneous with the inception of the Anthropocene. We heard half the message. We are glued to phenomena and can't peel them away to see the things in themselves. Then we hung up the phone, scared of the nihilesque talk. We have argued ourselves into the convenient position of feeling smugly that we don't need ontology, while at the same time unconsciously cleaving to an easy, clean, easy think notion that things are reducible to nothing but smaller things, relations between things, larger things, discourses of things, mathematizability, consciousness of things, economic relations concerning things among humans, and so on and so on. We want our humans all twisty and weird, but we want everything else to resemble what comes out of an easy-bake oven. Thanks very much. <laughs> Boiling in the Laturian water, the frog starts to think some pretty weird thoughts. What happens when we refuse to reduce things even to themselves? Everything is bristly and crinkly all the way down, like fractals. Everything deviates from itself in order to exist. Everything is fragile, and the model for that fragility is a logical system that must by definition contain a flaw, or what in Greek tragedy was called hamartia, an intrinsic flaw, not some superficial accident, but a founding, grounding, possibility condition flaw, not a blemish, but a deep wound. That's how the secret agents of Gaia may not even know that they are secret agents. They are in total deep cover, even to themselves. Since this deepest of deep covers cannot be blown, not by the strongest philosophical fission bomb, other kinds of moves are required. Playful, affiliative, accommodating dance moves in which I try to weave myself and other agents together, disturbingly non-instrumentally and in ways that show up as kitsch and cop-out and hypocrisy just for the taste of it. In a way that infuriates those sad sack enforcers of hysterical or paranoid anthropocentrism, the proper philosophers, which is why I salute anyone who wants to think that Latour is a philosophy. 
Gaia is then disturbingly and delightfully playful, a trickster or Leela or Kali, a cat who loves to nip, a scholar who loves to make the wavy green grammar error line appear by typing who after cat, or Heraclitus's nature, a playful child who loves to hide. It's just like old times, only this time we have the stats. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next presenter is Bron Taylor on Bruno Latour and the Seductions of Gaian Animism. Closing this one and getting the next one up. I'll probably just go for this one. Okay. And we're, yeah, yeah, go back to one. Thank you. Wasn't that fun? I knew this was going to be fun, and thank you all for organizing this and the, the wonderful chance to meet some new colleagues here. Um, we tried and almost got Bruno to join us, and uh, that may yet occur where we can really uh, have it out a little bit. And what I most regret is that I don't have an opportunity for him to respond today and then say, I take it all back, I was wrong. Um, but I'm going to try anyway to push Bruno a little bit. Clearly, Bruno Latour is one of the most innovative scholars of our time. And so this is what I expected when I turned to his Gaia-related productions. But in this case, I think Latour is following broader cultural trends in many ways rather than leading them, not obviously fully recognizing the extent to which this is the case. I certainly think that Latour is being seduced by cultural innovations that I call Gaian animism and promoting a Gaian spirituality and political theology that is already well underway. I begin with the ancient Gaius, uh, goddess Gaia and Organicist philosophy, which have been around since the agents, ancients. Organicism is the idea that the universe and the biosphere function in ways that resemble the interrelated and mutually dependent functions of the organisms of a body. So with organicism, all things are entwined and nested within unfolding energetic systems of the universe. Gaia faded, of course, uh, along with the rest of the Greco-Roman pantheism, pantheon for a long time, but the idea of the Earth as a living organism was kindled anew in 1785 when James Hutton wrote, I consider the Earth to be a superorganism, and its proper study is by physiology. One need not invoke the name of the goddess to express the ideas that would become associated with Gaia theory today, however. When speaking of a living Earth, for example, Henry David Thoreau was presaging a modern Gaia theory when he wrote, there's nothing inorganic. The earth is not dead history, but living poetry, not a fossil earth, but a living earth. Nope, back one. 
if we can, uh, if we can define animism as the perception that there are intelligences in nature with whom we can and should be in proper relationship, then Thoreau also expressed animistic perceptions. He wrote of the natural world as full of subtle intelligences, and when speaking of lumbermen, stated that his sympathies lie with the spirit of the living trees. Thoreau thus fused Guyan animism uh, and animistic perceptions in a way that has become increasingly common in contemporary nature, spirituality, and ethics. In recent decades, Guyan and animistic terminology has often been used as shorthand for such perceptions and values. In a recent book, I analyzed the ways in which both Guyan and animistic beliefs can be conventionally religious, involving perceptions of deities or spiritual intelligences in nature, or they can be entirely naturalistic, involving no such belief. I also describe the traits and characteristics typically associated with such nature spirituality, which are summarized on these slides, on this slide. I argued that the naturalistic forms were the ones gathering the greatest cultural traction because they were grounded in earth system science on the one hand and on ethology on the other. Ethology has increasingly blurred the line between humans and other organisms and the traits that supposedly differentiate us. I've been bemused, therefore, when scholars announce as if it were a great revelation, that the world is full of beings with intelligence, emotion, and agency. And when others declare as if it were a new perception that living systems resemble organisms, so we should speak of the earth as a living being. But it is not only the unfolding appreciation for Gaian spirituality and the recognition of multifold agencies in the world that Latour and others represent that has drawn my attention. In a way that has affinity with anthropologist Roy Rappaport, Latour seems to recognize that humans need to develop ceremonies that inspire ecologically adaptive behaviors. Toward this end, he's turned playwright and performer in his Gaia Global Circus. Uh, these images are from his first play that was produced uh, earlier called Cosmo Colossa. Uh, Latour's point is that the creation of ceremony, of ritual, help, will help people compose existentially satisfying and meaningful nature cultures in which they can then flourish. This is an important strategic dimension of his political theology. My point, if we can use the great anthropologist as data, is that Latour is a latecomer among those composing a secular worldview involving an ecological metaphysics of earthly belonging and interconnection, which is in turn fused to a recognition of the vital agencies of all beings and entities who constitute the living world. This sort of hybrid I've called Gaian animism, which is a good label for the kind of spirituality that Latour is promoting with scholarly prose and artistic performance. Through both, he hopes to evoke in us a deep sense of responsibility for Gaia and her denizens. But people have been expressing and promoting these sorts of ideas and ceremonial practices for generations. Stateside John Muir famously articulated the metaphysics of interconnection and belonging to nature and an animistic spirituality. I have quotes on the slide. So did Rachel Carson through her imaginative rendering of the consciousness of the sea and its inhabitants. Alda Leopold, who is now considered one of the greatest ecologists and natural philosophers of the 20th century, even more forthrightly articulated an organicist worldview. The land is one organism, he wrote, and we should respect it not only as a useful servant, but as a living being. It was, of course, 
the British scientist James Lovelock, who advanced a scientific theory about the Earth functioning like a self-regulating organism, naming the biosphere after the Greek goddess Gaia. He has also called himself a follower of William Blake, of Leopold, and of Rachel Carson. And yet, like many of his time, he took great inspiration for the, from the photographs uh, of planet Earth from space. He recalls that his understanding of Gaia came to him when he saw photographs taken by the Apollo astronauts. He wrote, suddenly, as a revelation, I saw the Earth as a living planet. He was not the only one in the world who was rocked by such images. Indeed, the iconoclastic Stuart Brand may have been the first to see this image, at least in his mind eye, while on acid. As a result, in 1966, he made buttons and led the campaign to get NASA to take a picture of the whole Earth. He thought such an image might precipitate a change in human consciousness and then uh, lead, to a, uh, lead to social and ecological harmony. In November 1967, a NASA satellite took the first picture of the whole Earth, which in 1968, Brand put on the cover of the initial Whole Earth Catalog. In the following years, get the yeah. in the following years, astronauts from many centuries described the view from space as a revelation, leading them to deeply recognize Earth as our one true home, that all life is interconnected and valuable, and that we must overcome our destructive behaviors and divisions. Such messages, including that of human insignificance, were reinforced by the first photograph of Earth as a pale blue dot from Voyager, as well as more recent and spectacular images from the Cassini spacecraft, shown here. The cultural significance of the whole Earth iconography and countercultural spirituality and politics has increasingly been recognized, including in a recent exhibition in Berlin. It included the Earthrise photograph with text promoting Lovelock's Gaia theory. Gaia has found devotees beyond the counterculture, however. In 2008, Time Magazine's special environmental issue focused on how to win the war on global warming. Inside was an advertisement by Sanyo, a Japanese electronics company, claiming that it was taking its corporate philosophy directly from Lovelock's Gaia theory and stating that the company considered the Earth to be a single living organism in which all life and nature coexist interdependently. The company even declared its intention to create products that help people live in harmony with the planet. I've never seen a clear confession of Gaian spirituality, but it's hardly the only one. Gaia was ubiquitous at the United Nations-sponsored World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg in 2002. From the Mother Earth spirituality in this advertisement promoting nuclear power as a solution to global warming, to BMW's huge Earth Dome touting its contributions to sustainability while offering a journey to, its, to the center of its Earth with refreshments. More directly relevant to Latour's project was the Gaia-related welcome ceremony, a performance that began with a depiction of the emergence of life on Earth. First, the plants then the animals, all grooving in Edenic harmony and utterly fabulous costumes.
as shown in these images from the pageant. But through ignorance and greed, the pageant continued. Our species went astray, causing widespread destruction and suffering, which can only be rectified which can only be rectified by loving our place in space and developing reverence for Gaia, which the delegates were there, presumably, to protect. The same year Mother Earth was venerated during the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics as Native Americans were presented as promoting harmony on Mother Earth. And skaters danced to Native drumming in sync with the heartbeat of Mother Earth this expression of Gaian spirituality was seen by nearly half of the six billion people then, uh, three billion people, I should say, then on the planet. Uh, Captain Planet has also promoted Gaia since 1990. In this Earth, in this Ted Turner created cartoon, Gaia, as the spirit of the Earth, empowers children to save the planet, assisted when needed by the badass superhero Captain Planet himself. James Cameron's Avatar is but one more cinematic expression of Gaian animism. As he put it, Avatar asks us to see that everything is connected, all human beings to each other and us to the earth. And when Dr. Augustine was dying, she came to understand that she was becoming a part of this Gaia-like energetic system. I could provide many more examples to show that Latour's Gaian work is flowing within broad cultural streams. But I do think there are differences between Latour's Gaian reflections and performances uh, of such phenomena elsewhere. This may be related to the way Latour, following a contemporary scholarly fashion, insists that there is no non-human nature and claims we must embrace the Anthropocene if we're to recognize the responsibilities that come with being the planet's dominant animal. I've noticed, for example, that in Latour's Gaia productions, in spite of his stress on the multifold nature of agency in the world, non-human organisms are mere background. Nothing specific is seen of the plants and animals in his play, for example, and neither are they heard from apart from a crescendo of distress in one of the play's final acts. So despite his theoretical embrace of the multivocal nature of the world, Latour's musings and ritual innovations pay scant attention to the host of Earth's exotic intelligences, at least in his performances. He does not help us to imagine fully what these voices might say to us if they were given a chance. I'm struck with the contrast with the UN's uh, welcome ceremony. Um, the relative absence of non-human organisms is also in stark contrast to the tabloids and performances created to give salmon and other endangered species a voice in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s. This is also in contrast to the many examples of Gaia-related art that teaches the interdependence and kinship of life and a science-informed reverence for biodiversity. And it is profoundly different than the Council of All Beings, a ritual process invented in 1985 that's been held subsequently in dozens of countries around the world. In it, people imagine themselves and dress up as diverse entities who meet and talk with one another, and later in the process, they speak directly to human beings of their hurt and angry, anger at the ways they're being treated, even often exterminated. Often afterward, those involved in the council try to heal the earth through ecological restoration practices or are moved to protest, often speaking 
dressed as non-human organisms, here as turtles at the WTO protest in Seattle. Restoration projects and environmental protests can both be analyzed as earth-venerating ritual. So can pilgrimages, performances, and practices that narrate cosmic and biological evolution at planetariums and natural history museums around the world, including at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, wherein the hall of the universe and cosmic pathway express and promote awe and wonder of the unfolding universe and an implicit reverence for Gaia. And in the attached natural history museum, our kinship with other living beings is stressed. Such cosmogonies can be found both on the ground and in cyberspace. The walk through time I first saw as a long walking meditation at the UN Earth Summit in 2002. Its panels were later put online. It takes people through cosmological and biological evolution, stressing humility about what we know and how we can know, while endorsing Gaian biophysics, urging action to, pre to prevent anthropogenic uh, extinctions while treating the story of cosmological evolution as a sacred story. And quoting Thoreau as a coda, in wildness is the preservation of the world. So when I consider Latour's Gaian turn, I see him flirting seriously with Gaian animism, informed by system science and his recognition that the world is animated by a host of actors in vast networks. I see him acknowledging that these networks and actors get too little attention and respect. Despite this flirtation, however, Latour does not appear to, be, to be ready to go all the way. Perhaps he's worried about being called a romantic, which is, for some, the cardinal sin for an academician. And quoting through, oops, wrong way, for whatever reasons, for whatever reasons, Latour seems deeply tethered to certain anthropocentric assumptions. Like most scholars who have embraced the Anthropocene trope, Latour does not seem to perceive that doing so involves more than accepting reality and responsibility. It assumes a best, at best a fatalistic posture regarding human domination. At worst, it represents a full-throated capitulation to an imperial order that's leading to the greatest erasure of difference that one group of organisms has ever perpetrated on other kind. To face Gaia responsibly, responsibly necessarily entails a retreat from not an embrace of our imperial selves. And I would, if I could, push Latour toward an even humbler approach and a stronger retreat from the anthro-imperial, from the anthro-imperium. Thank you, Bron. Our next presenter will be William Connolly, The Anthropocene, Spirituality, and Bruno Latour. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Baltimore. I live here. Um, so I, I, uh, I gave a little nip to Tim Morton on his neck while Bron Taylor was speaking. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, you noticed it or he noticed it. Um, so uh, the humans, the bifurcation of nature and culture, the modernists or the moderns, the abstract scientists, the theoescapists. To Latour, as I read him, this cadre faces an emerging cadre of the earthbound, the anthropocenists, the, cares, the carriers of a Gaia geostory lab-centric scientists and new secularists. Thus he sees and invokes explicitly a new Schmittian division between friends and enemies. The latter cadre, barely underway, 
embraces the Anthropocene as the defining condition of our time. It admits that we cannot dominate the earth. It acknowledges the absence of a providential order. It suppresses fantasies of escape to an afterlife or to another planet. This is as I'm reading his account. As the need to save a place here for the earthbound becomes vivid. It adopts a new secular image and sees that the sciences are a key site of struggle with denialists and defers. And it also challenges secular modernists who emphasize the past we have escaped rather than staring at the future looming before us. I learned from Latour, I think that there is something to the Gaia story, at least as modified by Lynn Margolis, Margulis, to the extent she retreats from calling Gaia an organism, or a holistic uh, uh, medium, and emphasizes its character as a set of intersecting, self-organizing processes with limited powers of self-sustainability, and with which we are entangled by numerous threads, ties, and other modes, and, uh, and, and it is full of incipiencies, with bristling, with noise, with possibilities of evolution or, or significant change. I can concur that both the stories of mastery and providence, or in another mode, uh, human exceptionalism and holism, uh, need to be challenged, that both stories need to be challenged, and that I need to find ways to exercise that strain of climate skepticism in me that Latour says invades all of us, including him, who talk about the problem more than doing things about it. Belief, he agrees, as a kind of pragmatist, is invested in performances as much as in what we say. Some People have already spoken about the, the ritual modes that he emphasizes. I do worry a bit, however, about the terms of the Schmidian division he has identified. So what I will try to do in the time available is to inflect the Latour perspective just a bit, rather than saying yes or no to it. Let's start with secularism. Secularism. I suppose that the Anto Creed I myself embrace is closer to that of Latour than to several other ontotheological creeds I have encountered here and there. But if you, as I do, and I think Latour does sometimes, also emphasize how creed and spirituality are interinvolved without either being entirely reducible to the other, this agreement does not exhaust the issues. My sense is that a spiritual struggle is being waged within the living creeds of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, non-theism, and Hinduism, at least as much as between any of them and something called uh, the new secularism. How so? Well, a creed expresses a set of formal intellectualized understandings, say of God, or of impersonal transcendence, or of radical imminence, and it is also the site of spiritual investments, not entirely exhausted by the formal creedal confession. There is always something abstract about a profession of belief 
even though that abstraction makes a difference, even though it counts, even though it has efficacy, because nothing is epiphenomenal. But that expression does not fully capture the nest of energies, uh, deposits, depositions, and drives from which it emerges. Belief is always more than it is. Uh, so the, the belief is this, also the site of spiritual investments, uh, not entirely exhausted by the formal creedal confession. An Augustinian may confess the doctrines of omnipotence and salvation and fill that doctrine or creed with either with love of this world and its plurality or with deep resentment of it, uh, constituting a lot of heresies. And an imminent naturalist might resent the world for lacking a salvational God or affirm it for the sweetness of, and abundance of life it makes available amidst the implacability of death and the shaky place of the human in the cosmos. Schmidt versus Nietzsche, you might say, both as imminent naturalists. If you pursue this theme of inter-involvement without complete reducibility, you may also sense how the exploration of spiritual affinities across diverse creeds could help to pave the way for creative construction of a more militant pluralist assemblage today on behalf of the earthbound. And some may be concentrated more, some of uh, these uh, members may be concentrated more in some creeds than others, but it will not fit closely the line of division uh, I read in Latour. So given the attenuated connection between creed and spirituality, the composition of a positive pluralist assemblage can and must be multi-creedal. In a similar way, I rather doubt that scientists divide neatly on this issue across the distinction between abstract types and lab-centered types. Some sophisticated lab scientists may not care all that much about climate change. Indeed, I think I've met some of them. And some abstract scientists may care a lot, even though their conceptual accounts of it may well vary from that of Latour or from that uh, I myself would embrace. Diverse spiritual tendencies make a difference here, too. For that matter, other lines of social division, such as class, education level, gender, sexuality, age cohort, uh, uh, religious orientation, or secular identification, do not line up neatly for the same reasons either. Uh, that is one reason, among others, that much of contemporary social science is often crude. It tends to ignore cross-creedal distributions of spirit spiritualities irreducible to the other social positions. Given potential affinities of spirituality across formal creeds and other subject positions, the struggle becomes a bit more pluridimensional, I'm sorry, pluridimensional than Latour may suggest, at least in some of the chapters that I read. The struggle is both within our souls and with others in otherwise similar subject positions, as well as between us and a bellicose group of climate deniers. Since Latour himself, if you read between the lines, seeks to touch us almost as much as to shift our cosmic creeds, 
I doubt whether what I am saying is that much at odds, as it were, with the spirit of his message, but it seems to be at odds with the lines of division he sets up. But isn't spirituality itself infused with belief? Yes. Uh, you adopt Augustinianism, but play up the importance of love a lot, while others play up the theme of heresy. Spirituality is bound to creedal differences within a creedal community. But a spirituality also infuses shared belief with variable degrees of intensity, and it helps to share which beliefs are given priority. Your intense gratitude for the human predicament may contrast with my deep resentment of this very condition as I perceive it in at least abstractly similar creedal terms. A spirituality gives a specific edge to belief, action, and politics. Its intensities bathe the quality of our participation in a spiritual community, whether that community be religious, professional, local, or educational, and so on. That is perhaps why arts of the self and micropolitics are as important to spiritual and political life as creedal sharpness. Creed, spirituality, and practice are interinvolved. Latour may see this when he says that many profess believe in the Anthropocene, but the actual reality, that is intensity of the belief, is mild by comparison by, uh, to the pursuit of other objectives. But he may not see it in the lines of division he promotes in his text. To the extent these spiritual political struggles are waged within church communities, scientific practices, family, gender relations, and university courses, as well as across them, it may uh, provide us with clues how to wage the struggle better. The hope is to pave the way for creative formation of a militant pluralist assemblage composed of multiple constituencies with affinities, not identities, of spirituality. Two. I don't know why, but it says two here, number two. Uh, today, could you, could you pass that, uh, bo that bottle down, Tim, the, that one there? I really appreciate it. Today we face a dilemma of electoral politics. One, the logic of the media, corporate, neoliberal, evangelical, filibuster, gerrymandering, Republican complex makes it very difficult to pursue a broad time horizon, to express attachment to the earth, or to address the Anthropocene within the grid of political intelligibility electoral politics makes possible. The scandal focus of the media, the, the ability of corporations to take market initiatives and then protect them uh, by exercising veto power in the state, the gerrymandering of seats connected to the filibuster, the strategic role of elections of, uh, in, uh, of those people who are called the undecided, who often are also the least informed. All of these work to make electoral politics dysfunctional. I hope I'm not surprising you. Two, but to forge electoral politics, to forego electoral politics, on the issues of the Anthropocene merely cedes more power and institutional control to the radical right in this country. It, it adds yet another institution they can deploy to enact an extreme agenda. So we must both participate in electoral politics 
and resists the grid of electoral intelligibility it secretes. The question is how to break such a dilemma in the age of the Anthropocene. To me, the most promising way to proceed out of perhaps a bad lot is to multiply the sites and scales of political action, moving back and forth between role experimentations in churches, work, consumption, locality, and the like, participation in new social movements, a return to electoral engagements, and cross-state citizen movements. Take role experimentation first. You may bring new visitors, issues, and themes to your church, mosque, or temple. Uh, I think that some of us are visitors here today. You may support the farm-to-table movement, buy a hybrid, or join a Zipcar collective and tell others why you did it. Put up solar panels if you can afford it. Shift a portion of your retirement fund to uh, sustainable investments if you have one. Write for a blog like The Contemporary Condition. I, write you, I invite you all to write for it and to read it. Join or frequent a repair club at which volunteers rebuild and recirculate old appliances and furniture. Travel to places that regularly challenge American assumptions of world entitlement. Each of these role experiments, and all in aggregate, are insufficient, of course, to the scope of the problems. As so many institutional political scientists and erstwhile revolutionaries eagerly tell you every day. They make you feel good but do not resolve the issue, couch objectivists love to say. Or you have shifted a few role performance, but your authenticity is still suspect uh, until you transform the system, a few revolutionaries say. Or now that you have dropped out to become authentic, you have lost purchase everywhere to make a real difference, and so we don't need to listen to you. Ignore and resist such attempts to, to place you in such a double bind. Pursue role experiments and, and continue to make an, take an invitational approach to others rather than uh, joining too intensely in the accusatory games so many love. As we proceed and connect to others in doing so, a series of things may happen. They may not happen, too. First, we are now a bit less implicated in the role performances that contribute collectively to the problem. Second, that helps the shaky belief-spirituality complex which, from which these experiments are formed to be loosened up even more, to be open to more experiments. Third, we now be, uh, be more connected and more prepared to join others in large militant political movements. So an accumulation of minor experiments can be linked to the escalation of demonstrations, pressures upon uh, our churches, universities, unions, and so forth. At some point, as the subterranean flows between different sites and scales of action accumulate, a new event will erupt. We can be sure of it, uh, such as a devastating hurricane, a severe drought, a new series of wildfires, radical protests elsewhere around the world about the entitlement assumptions of the United States. Now, to the extent the movement back and forth between sites and scales has been accentuated, the stage may be set for a more rapid shift in the terms of electoral politics, too. Do not underestimate the potential power of subterranean relays between role experimentation, uh, pressure upon social institutions, social movements, and electoral politics. 
It indeed, if a new pluralist assemblage does become consolidated, the time may arrive when it is plausible to launch a nonviolent general strike in several countries at the same time. At least that is what will be needed to speak to the Anthropocene today. So my Schmidtian division, though more porous around the edges than that loved by Schmidt, is roughly between the alliance of neoliberalism with the right edge of evangelicalism on the one hand, yeah, uh, and, uh, uh, and a more intense pluralist assemblage to respond to the Anthropocene on the other. Uh, so I was going to tell you what the problems of this approach are, but I think you already know them. Thank you. Thank you. Our last presenter is Daniel Dudney, and he will speak about reflections on Gaian planetary civic religion. Is the tech person still here? We'd like some light here up on the podium. Doesn't seem to be switching on. Seems like that ought to be it. Here he comes. Okay. Uh, well, while we deal with this uh, material problem here, I'll, I'll get underway. Um, I should start by saying that I'm not going to talk about uh, what was just advertised, uh, and also that I am, uh, in many ways, uh, from yet another world. Uh, I'm not from the world of religious studies, uh, and I'm not from the world of high uh, metaphysical, philosophical theory. Um, I, I basically do uh, a much more sort of situated political theory. Uh, that has been, uh, for the last several decades, been focused on the global and um, the planetary uh, and uh, specifically uh, various aspects of environment and nuclear uh, and uh, a focus uh, on the political dimensions uh, of republicanism broadly. Uh, it, so that's been where I'm coming from. And, and I'm going to, I say this because what I'm going to say about Latour uh, really comes from this uh, perspective, uh, which I think is different from the ones before, although in part it overlaps with some of the things Bill said. Uh, my reaction to uh, Latour's Gifford lectures uh, is, is very bifurcated. Uh, on the one hand, a very favorable, um, the, uh, the, the bottom line point of what Latour is saying is that we need to take uh, this problem of climate change uh, much more seriously. Uh, and every effort uh, that is done uh, in that regard, particularly by a figure of such authority, has to basically uh, be lauded. Uh, and second, uh, I think that Latour's position uh, is a very important contribution because he uh, has been, or not just in this, but in his other work as well, uh, helping to dispel uh, this uh, great uh, intellectualist mistake uh, that we call uh, postmodernism. Um, now, as one who, as soon as it sort of started to come out, uh, thought, gee, this is really not going to be very useful for the types of issues that I'm interested in, i.e., the global and the environment, 
uh, I, I applaud Latour's sophistication, his doggedness in uh, dispelling uh, this uh, very dubious path. Uh, and third, the, the, these are lectures, uh, and uh, as someone who gives lectures and uh, uh, purports to appreciate the arts of oratory and rhetoric, uh, these lectures are a tour de force. Uh, they are filled with brilliant uh, intellectual somersaults, uh, various uh, pithy uh, and uh, provocative uh, linguistic uh, formations. Uh, and they are a real delight uh, to read, and I regret that I wasn't in the audience. Um, now, I have some more uh, unfavorable reactions uh, as well. Um, the first of them, uh, I really have all together here my scrambled uh, notes. Um, I have uh, four uh, griefs uh, with gripes uh, with this. Um, set of arguments. Uh, first of all is that um, Latour, uh, throughout these lectures uh, and throughout his uh, contributions uh, to the conversation about the Gaian and the climate change issue, tends to emphasize the uh, extent to which uh, this is a break, uh, that it is novel, uh, and that uh, expectations of continuity uh, are ones that we have got to importantly um, uh, dispel ourselves of. Um, but I think that this is actually uh, a potentially costly uh, path to take, that the opposite path uh, is actually uh, more appealing. Uh, and the first reason why this is the case is because the, uh, everyone can hear me without this. You want this? All right, good. Thank you. Um, the, uh, the first continuity uh, that would be noted here is the extent to which what we're dealing with with Gaia and climate change, while yes, it is novel in its scale, is important ways very much not novel to the human experience. Uh, from, from the very beginning, uh, we have been doing more or less what we have to now do uh, on a larger scale. Uh, humans have been embedded uh, in various thick webs of material causality, uh, and they've experienced uh, utter vagary of nature, plagues, droughts, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they have also recognized uh, from the smallest scale, living in a cave or living in a hut, uh, to now quasi-continental scale over the last century, that yes, if they do these things, then bad stuff will happen, that there are these feedback loops, these complex uh, patterns of causality that have been discovered uh, experimentally, uh, a school of hard knocks, and there is an enormous part of what our civilization uh, is has been dealing with these types of feedbacks. Uh, and we haven't done it uh, well in all cases, and there's no guarantee that we're going to be able to do it uh, at this new scale uh, of the planet. Uh, but emphasizing that it is so different uh, surely uh, is not going to contribute. Um, second uh, is, in this theme of continuity here, uh, is the cost of, uh, of his focus on the novelty, that it's a radical break. 
um, is that it leads us uh, to downplay the value, to overlook uh, what is, in fact, a very robust set of uh, political traditions uh, and political practices. Um, and, and my approach to this uh, is to say that, well, what we're really doing here is talking about the scaling up of the domestic and the municipal. Uh, and that when we think about the situation uh, in that regard, there's a wide array of, of civic forms, uh, broadly uh, Republican, Democratic, uh, that we have been uh, progressively uh, modernizing and expanding uh, in uh, their scope. Uh, and in the course of, of, of this expansion of the domestic, uh, which has been richly focused on um, feedback loops and complex materialities, uh, we, we've developed various sorts of general ethoses uh, that are very uh, appropriate. Uh, good fences make good neighbors. Uh, people who live in a neighborhood uh, need to adopt good neighbor policies. Uh, and this is, of course, very different than this sort of Habesian, Smithian uh, politics that he gives us. And, and, and this failing to, to look at uh, uh, the continuities, to emphasizing the breaks, leads us to overlook this fabulous uh, a, a set of tools that we've been using, uh, just to mention some of them, zoning ordinances, building codes, restrictive covenants, tax and permitting, subsidy systems, technical standards, land use planning, all of which we do as part of the routine fabric of our civilization in terms of dealing with the environment and feedbacks in the environment that we have caused on smaller scales. And so our challenge basically, uh, and I think this is actually what, what much of actually existing environmental practice in, in regard to these problems has been, is essentially attempting to uh, continue them. Emphasizing discontinuity takes us away from that path. Uh, my third uh, concern uh, with the, um, the Latourian, uh, I'm sorry, this is the second main one, my notes, I have a very hard time seeing this actually, um, is the uh, second point, is the curious detachment uh, in his work uh, from the actual uh, materiality uh, of the environmental movement. Uh, yes, it's not been global in its focus until very recently, uh, but it's been local and regional. Uh, but what, as many have pointed out, what the environmental movement has actually been advocating is that we adopt new material practices and come up with the various types of identities and ideas and institutions to basically support that practice. Uh, and, and so we, it, it's obviously complexly material pipes in this configuration, plant this here. And it's highly tailored to uh, geoclimactic, uh, uh, geophysical uh, variations. Uh, this has been what uh, actual environmental practice is. Uh, and I think that if we think about what the environmental movement has been doing uh, and, and not emphasize break, we can actually look at the world and we can see that there are prototypes uh, for doing all of the things that we basically need to do. They just have to be uh, diffused into a much more extensively practiced form. Uh, the, th the third uh, observation here, and this is perhaps a bit academicist, 
uh, is about the treatment of uh, the existing uh, literatures uh, and theories uh, on this topic. Um, w w as someone who's been you know, reading Lovelock and, and thinking about these issues and engaged with the environmental movement, w w when I read a lot of this uh, more recent uh, high uh, political uh, metaphysics ontology type of, of talk and writing as we see in Latour, um, I, 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 I keep wondering to myself, didn't I hear basically this before uh, in different languages? Uh, and there's this remarkable uh, non-engagement with those who either before or contemporaneous uh, to this uh, recent line of argument have been saying roughly the same thing. Uh, and, and one of the, the, there's a whole series of rhetorical sort of moves uh, that uh, Latour and others in this vein um, adopt. Uh, there's this tendency to straw man, uh, for, for example, the, the modern. Uh, well, it's the capital N modern, and yes, then we have Descartes and Kant rolled out as uh, embodying uh, this, these metaphysical mistakes. And, and that point is always w worth making. Uh, but the question then is, what about the little m modern? Uh, the, the much more engaged, pragmatic, Montesquieu through Dewey, uh, let's say. Uh, it, there's a silence uh, in engaging this. Um, and, and particularly when we're doing geopolitics, as he claims to want to be doing here, um, while the term is only a century old, Western thought has been doing geopolitics richly from the very beginning. There's no engagement with this. Uh, we, we, in political science, like to say the three founders of our enterprise are Aristotle, Machiavelli, and Montesquieu. And in two of them, Aristotle and Montesquieu, it's filled with all of these arguments about nature and materiality. Uh, Montesquieu, climate is the greatest empire. There's a, a remarkable silence here um, on all of this. And with regard to the contemporary stuff outside high theory, when I read Latour and others in this vein uh, about these webs and so forth and loops, isn't this really what the larger body of thought uh, has been saying over several decades under the rubric of complex interdependence? I wish there would be some engagement here. I wish that the high theorists who are doing this would attempt to differentiate what they are saying that is different aside from the dispelling of these various uh, often inflated metaphysical uh, ogres. Another example of this here in this book, think globally, act locally, well, Latour is very dismissive of that. Why? Well, because the global, he then goes into a large discussion about the perfect sphere. Well, when people say, think globally, act locally, they're not saying, they're not evoking perfect spheriality. They're making the same point that he's making in other language about feedback loops and their uh, complexity. I could go on and on and on uh, in this vein, and it would be both uh, intemperate and probably uh, boring. Uh, finally, uh, on the politics uh, of all of this, uh, when I read uh, Latour and the Gifford lectures and elsewhere, I have to say I don't really know what his politics are, uh, and it's hard to tell. Uh, and, uh, but but the, the, what I do see uh, raises red flags for me, uh, raises some, uh, some, some doubts. 
first of all, is this uh, emphasis on complete break, on this radical novelty. Now, the notion that everything has to be changed uh, is something that we have heard over the last several centuries uh, from high theorists, and particularly from Parisian high theorists, over and over again. Um, more specifically, when we get to the political, uh, he talks most in uh, these lectures about Hobbes and Schmidt. And I really don't think that these are guys that uh, give us uh, very good starting points or, or, or handles on this. Um, my approach, uh, to build on what I said earlier, is really the domestic side, is the Aristotelian Deweyan uh, applied on successively larger spatial scales. Uh, Hobbes and Schmidt are both theorists of in extremis. Uh, and his arguments about Hobbes uh, are really uh, quite uh, mangled in terms of his arguments about the state of nature and anarchy. Uh, I won't bother to sort of untangle them here, but one simple point about Hobbes' incompatibility is he's, Hobbes starts with this radical individualism, uh, and that's uh, very uh, dubious for understanding uh, these uh, immense uh, assemblages of collectives and the politics appropriate uh, to them. But Schmidt um, is somebody who is, of course, not just uh, appearing in the work of Latour, uh, but there has been uh, among the academic high theory and academic left, both in the United States and uh, Europe, uh, a Schmidt boom, uh, which I have to say uh, puzzles me uh, immensely. Uh, the crown jurist of the Third Reich, uh, the author of the fascist theory of sovereignty, really. Uh, his often quoted line, the sovereign is who decides the exception, uh, people take as, as, as his idea uh, and also as right. Uh, and I think that this is horrific politically. Uh, from the Republican Democratic tradition, the sovereign doesn't decide the exception. The executive decides the exception. This is the Lockean prerogative or constitutional uh, reason of state. Uh, and the project for politics uh, for liberal Democrats and Republicans is to avoid situations where the executive has to make the exception. Uh, and so insofar as we ha have a theory here of Schmidt, uh, it, it's one which is radically antithetical uh, to uh, liberal, uh, democratic, uh, broadly Republican approaches. Finally, uh, there is this appeal uh, in uh, Latour uh, to Schmidt uh, from the standpoint of war and enemy. Uh, and uh, th this is a remarkable move uh, that Latour is making here in several ways. One is because what he has done, and I see no recognition of this in, in the, the, what he says, is that he's jumped into this very large debate about environment and security and militarization and so forth, but he's jumped at an extreme side of one side of the debate. Uh, environmental change, is it going to cause a war uh, or is it going to trigger uh, cooperation? Is environmental restoration uh, going to uh, desecuritize de in important ways? Uh, this is something that I'd like to see what he actually means beyond this evocation of these large metaphors. And, and it's troubling, therefore, that the politics that Latour actually seems to have here are, are echo-authoritarian uh, and echo-violent uh, uh, in what would seem to be uh, their connotations. 
So in general, uh, I think that uh, there is much less here uh, than meets the eye, uh, and that uh, there is a great deal uh, that is not here, that is not engaged, that would be uh, much more productive uh, for uh, those who are interested in this problem to focus on. Thank you, and I want to thank all the panelists for such provocative and entertaining um, presentations. So we're now going to open things up. Um, we've got about 45 minutes. I'm, I'm going to be leaving 10 minutes at the end of the session for the Social Theory and Religion Business Meeting, and would certainly invite um, anyone who's interested to stay for that. So, yes. Do we have a, yeah, if you'd go to the mic, that would be great. That would make it easier for all of us to hear. Could we um, have the mic on the floor turned on, please? Is there somebody over in the tech area? I guess they've gone. Go right ahead. kind of empirical argument. Um, and then second, further Thank elaborating you. on this idea of playfulness, um, which Professor Morden brought up, um, I kind of wondered if there is a certain mood or affect involved in living in the Anthropocene, um, especially since it seems strange to me that at the moment when we're faced with environmental destruction, even apocalypse, um, our approach to the problem is to become playful and to talk about it and to perform it. Um, it. Playfulness seems not to be the obvious response there. So is this the kind of mood or affect that we, as the Anthropos of the Anthropocene, should be cultivating? And why would that be the case at this time? Can I, can I speak to that one first? Yeah. Um, I, I almost see the exact opposite. Um, I, 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 I see a lot of... Uh, lack of playfulness in the way that um, philosophers, uh, politicians, activists, uh, deniers, everybody um, works with this situation. One of the symptoms of that is this idea that the, the world is about to come to an end. You know, um, 
it might be helpful to notice that it already has. Then you could smile. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not crying. I think the kind of laughter that is a necessary component of ecological awareness is to be found inside the sense of, of, uh, of, of, of crying. This is one reason why at the end of the city Dionysia for every three tragedies there was a comedy you know, oh my god I'm stuck in a feedback loop and every time I try to escape it it doubles down on itself and OMG I am the web of fate OMG OMG ha 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 that's a bit weird right, you have to at some point you have to laugh right and the laughter is not opposite to a very accurate realistic sense of doom I think the laughter is found within a kind of unconditional sadness that is a kind of like the liquid center of the chocolate of ecological awareness and the frozen kind of part around the liquid center is a kind of depressive melancholia since that melancholia implies coexisting with other beings, right? So um, our job, I think, Latour's job is to get people past the denial phase of, of, of grief into something more flexible and I think, you know, you, the play quality there um, is uh, terribly uh, um, helpful for, for, for that. Can we get these microphones on? Yeah. We have some help I'll try this one for now. Well, uh, thanks for your, uh, your question. Um, the... Um, what I want to do is, to, what I wanted to do was to kind of uh, work around the edges of the constituency divisions that Latour is proposing, because I think that the assemblage has to be more pluralistic than he realizes, and I think that uh, that there's some some way in which he's creating some divisions that don't need to be created. Uh, but what I so I don't think he was being playful, but there. I mean, there's playfulness in Latour, and I, and I appreciate it. Uh, but I, what I think he is doing is uh, 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 calling a, attention to the profound importance of the issue and how we all uh, seek to defer attention to it uh, in so many ways on, on so many occasions. And there, uh, I'm with him. Uh, and and th this kind of profound importance doesn't, mean that you are sullen at all times. So I think I agree with, with Tim there because you need a certain kind of energy of affirmation of, of, of the human predicament, human predicament as you define it to help to motivate, to help to kind of establish the energies that are needed for uh, action on these multiple fronts to, to, uh, to cope with the, uh, the situation. But, uh, but it's... Uh, it's profoundly important, and it may be the most important issue that we have confronted. So I agree with Latour on that point. Uh, I guess we'll just map, pass this around, this microphone, as we go. Does anybody else down there want to comment? I could probably answer that. Okay. I'm going to address the first question about Latour and the way uh, he's often said that actor network theory was useful for certain sorts of things to help us get a sense of how, in the case of science, but in the case of any other way of knowing, how the connections are made between what people do and what 
the non-humans are doing with us in all of that, but that it was limited uh, in that it didn't allow us to preserve the differences between, say, what we call science and what we call religion and what other cultures do and all of that. So he wanted, he's, he's, he's wanted to come back to these more um, kind of deeper ontological differences which his modes of existence project is trying to get at. I, I think there's definitely a playfulness in in his rhetoric and the way he's doing what he's doing, but I think it's a pretty serious project as he sees it because he's trying to reframe the way we think about all those things so that it's not religion, science, art, economy, politics, and so on because he thinks that that, 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 that set of divisions doesn't allow us to engage cosmopolitically, so with other cultures and so on. So we really have to get a sense of how each of them has been working. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult to do. So, you know, it's, it's work in progress. All right, other questions? Yeah. Yeah, hi, thank you for a uh, fascinating panel. I was wondering um, if I could get you all to comment on a comment that Latour makes. I think of the third or fourth uh, <clears throat> of the lectures. And he says that the Anthropocene is, quote, the most decisive philosophical, religious, and political concept yet produced as an alternative to the very notions of the modernity. Um, now, that struck me as a really fascinating idea because there's a lot of problems with trying to define, you know, modernity. And as soon as you say that something is modern, you set up, a, you know, an opposition that's, um, you know, shot through with power relations and all that kind of stuff. Um, links to what uh, Bill's done regarding the problems of the concept of secularism and the paradigm of secularism. So. Uh, and it seems to me that if you focus on the Anthropocene, then you're not wondering, like, what do we do in the, how do we conduct ourselves as moderns, but how do we conduct, it just frames the debate about the social collective completely differently. So um, I wonder if that, yeah, I wonder, I, I'd be interested to hear the panel's response to that, that notion. Thanks. Who wants to respond down there? Can we have some help with the mics, please? They don't all seem to be working. Thank you. Uh, yes, your uh, question on the uh, Anthropocene uh, and Gaia as uh, being the largest um, challenger uh, to the modern is you know, very typical of the sort of grade of argument that you see uh, in Latour uh, in these lectures. And, um, you know, my reaction to it is that um, the Anthropocene, as, as he does acknowledge, w when does it begin? Uh, and uh, there has been uh, at least many decades uh, of an awareness of, of the different dimensions of this, uh, and more generally, the realization that humans were you know, wrecking the natural environment has been you know, a, a, a large part of uh, a, a large number of people's uh, worldview and uh, been working on practices uh, relevant to it uh, for uh, much of the 20th century, and and so I, I, I and I and I see this evoked as something more powerful than the modern, and and I think that the modern here, and this is this typically Latourian sort of you know, high theory move, the modern is the capital M modern, 
Uh, and once we have uh, posited uh, some sort of construct of this sort, uh, then it does look like there's a change. But that's quite illusory uh, because the low modern uh, has always, is actually where much of the awareness of this uh, came from. Uh, and uh, various reactions in dealing with it is embedded within that. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of uh, metaphysical uh, kind of bird shooting here uh, that in kind of the vicinity of, of, of where the actual uh, action is. Can you just perhaps quickly elaborate again that distinction, though, between the capital M modern and the, the small m modern for us? I, yes. mean, I think I got what you were saying. But yes. Um, well, as I understand the way this uh, capital M modern uh, is used uh, here is that it's you know, Cartesian and is the spirit of geometry of the Enlightenment. And you know, it has this kind of totalistic power project. Uh, and it's very top-down. And it has you know, notions of scientific uh, perfectibility via technological modernization associated with it. And, and there's no doubt that there have been important strands uh, over the last several centuries that have been in that vein. But how much is, has that actually really been where the, the bulk of thought and action has been? And there's this lower modern tradition, which is the middle modern enlightenment and the various modernizations thereof, m m much of it that never gets kind of registered as high theory. Uh, and, and, and Latour is good at talking about these various sciences that have these low prestiges and so forth. But a lot of these low prestige sciences and technical knowledges as well uh, actually are an immense part of the fabric of our civilization and, and governing those domains with these accreting knowledges has been much of what modernity is. Um, I'm, I, I like making metaphysical toys. Um, the question of the Anthropocene is, is um, very much a question of when did it start. Um, this debate is actually within geology as well as between geology and other disciplines. Um, what's interesting about the term Anthropocene um, is precisely this question of, of beginning. Um, the, um, unlike the Holocene, let's say, um, the Anthropocene is defined by a kind of uh, catastrophe. Yeah. Um, you could imagine um, a series of concentric catastrophic circles um, that contain one another. Rather than a linear sequence that goes Pleistocene, Holocene, Anthropocene, whatever, it's better to think geological time that way. Why? Because we are in it. Um, for instance, um, we are having this conversation because we breathe oxygen. Oxygen is the product of a catastrophic event that you could call the bacteria scene. The bacteria scene began when enough bacteria emitted enough oxygen to create a feedback loop such that they all had to go and hide in single-celled organisms that did breathe oxygen. Um, life itself, or, or uh, self-replicating molecules, um, uh, uh, sort of define themselves against cyanide. There was a period called the cyanidocene in which that occurred. 
right? So um, um, what's also interesting, of course, is that the Anthropocene itself, um, which is totally real, um, is um, a uh, sort of logarithmic increase in the kinds of logistical activities that go way before modernity, unquote. Logistical agricultural activities that go back to the Fertile Crescent agricultural model, which is a kind of viral code that became very, very successful. It has to do with eliminating contradictions from social, from built space, right? I'm not going to have any weeds. I'm not going to have any invasive species. Oh, look, here are some cats. They've come to help me clean up the contradictions. Um, nature, um, which is this sort of idea of, peri of, peri of periodic cycling, you know, and harmony, um, is, of course, a product of this logistical pro uh, project. The, the, the periodicity that we observe of Earth systems, such as the nitrogen cycle for 10,000 years, are to do with human intervention, right? This is the kind of way that Latour helps me to think, right? So that there's no um, nature as opposed to human beings. Um, Non-human beings are always on the inside of social, psychic, and philosophical space, which means that social space was never truly human or exclusively human in the first place. And there is no sort of linear time. There is rather a series of concentric circles bounded by catastrophic events that kind of define them. There's a series of nested loops that are basically sets of things that contain things that aren't members of them. So yeah, sure, it's an ontological metaphysical problem. We need metaphysics and ontology to understand what the hell this is. Yeah, um, so, yeah, high theory uh, needs work. Uh, low modernism needs work. Uh, all of us need a hell of a lot of work. Uh, and that if you look at uh, the kind of uh, theory, which I'm drawn to in some ways, uh, of, of Dewey and others, uh, they, they had, they, they had an interesting kind of experimentalism at work, but they had no sense of the Anthropocene. Uh, it wasn't uh, on their horizon. I don't blame them for that. I blame later political economists who were very, very common and who ignored it completely. Uh, and they're kind of part of low modernism, I guess, if you think of neoliberalism as part of low modernism. I do. And I think of it as very, very low modernism. And, and uh, so I, th I think that the starting assumptions that I make when I get up in the morning oftentimes uh, carry notions of subject and object and self and other and that, that need work not in the, and, and, and that I must regularly work on them uh, and that others need to do that work too because the situation is different. Sure, there was radical climate change we now know well before human beings made a difference to it and sometimes it was over a relatively short period but now there are six billion people in the world, and there's rapid climate change, and, and it's making a very profound difference to all of us. And we, um, it, it, our actions, our faiths, and our categories are really not up to it. They're not up to it at this point. That's the way it seems to me. Uh, and so uh, I, I like the idea of the Anthropocene. I like a line that says, well, the last 200 years, I know it's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, but this is a political line, and it's an interesting political line. It makes you think about uh, the innocence with which we and our forebears were behaving and the, and the very studied innocence that we're 
following now because it has to be a really studied innocence and a studied complacency. You have to work like hell to have that complacency now. Uh, so, yeah, I go for the Anthropocene. I like the 200-year date. Somebody could persuade me to switch it to 210 years maybe. But uh, I, uh, and, and I think we need some dramatic kinds of uh, 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 notions like that and divisions like that and, and concepts to help us through as well as a certain kind of uh, uh, willingness to participate in a more uh, militant pluralist assemblage. It's not going to be... And it's not going to be a regular kind of politics. That's not, and it's not going to be the kind of politics my dad was in, you know, union working class politics. That's not enough. It has to be, an, today in the minoritization of the world, it has to be a pluralist assemblage of a different sort. And it's very difficult to assemble. But uh, I do not think that I can see this as something that is... Uh, that has been understood for a long time, and and is and and and, and what we're what we're doing with it, with adequate understandings and so forth. I, I think all of us need a hell of a lot of work. Uh, I exempt myself from that. Thank you. <laughs> Let me just piggyback on this a little bit because I, maybe a little bit of a wet blanket on the Anthropocene. Um, first, just to point out that um, there's no consensus on this term. This is uh, hotly debated right now, and. Um, uh, who knows what, whether this is going to, whether a consensus is going to emerge and what sort of dates will be uh, uh, put on it. Um, I think it's really important to interrogate the term a little more deeply than is typically done. I, I work a lot in Europe and in sort of international sustainability f uh, forums, and I must tell you that I see certain people in the sustainability-oriented world almost giddy with this idea. And I think there's a, a kind of deep, implicit uh, enthusiasm for, well, let's just finally face up to the fact that we are uh, the dominant creatures. And there's, it, it's not as though there's anything really felt problematic about that in the, way, the kind of ethos in which this term is often talked about. And that's uh, disturbing to me. Um, so is it a descriptive term? And I think it can be a descriptive term, and I think we can talk about um, whether we should do it. Some others are saying that maybe there's another kind of uh, epoch that should be identified, and I think it's worth having some long uh, arguments about this. Um, but I think we need to look and see whether there's some kind of, uh, and I don't think it's necessarily the case, but I think it's often the case, if there's some deeply uh, held anthropocentric uh, assumptions under the term, and, and indeed imperial ones, which was a small part of what I was trying to get, get at. I don't think the anthro-imperium is uh, as eloquent as the Anthropocene, but I think it is a more accurate term. And there have been people for a long time who have been talking about humans as the dominant animal. Um, normally outside of the social uh, uh, sciences and the humanities, and so as someone who is something of an environmental historian and a, an ethnographer of environmental movements, when I see so much uh, interest turning in this direction. I sort of feel like welcome to my world and that my world and the world of those who, who I study, who I think were way ahead on this kind of thing and for a long time. And one of the reasons that I've had to become something of a historian is that every time I thought I was seeing something new as an ethnographer and got a little wiser and older, I realized that, uh, gosh, there were people doing this and people thinking this a long time ago. 
So I think we need to drill back more historically. And I really appreciate that Dan is here uh, because uh, he can bring out more of the political theorists who have been working on these problems and, and uh, realistic solutions to them for a long time. Someone was over there by the microphone a minute ago. I don't know if you... Yeah, thanks. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, guys. I'm wondering where all our colleagues are. No, no offense to everybody else speaking right now here at AER, but this is definitely the best panel, I think, on right now, so thanks for your insights. Um, I don't know if I have a question. A, I haven't read the tour or his Gifford lectures, but hearing you guys speak, a few things spinning in my mind. One is Wes Jackson, and he says, we're going to have to become the first species to willingly walk away from using excess energy. All right, so we're going to go against the natural biological imperative. Uh, another term I've, I've heard lately is, is NIMTO, not in my term of office. And so a third one is from Alistair Brown, who you know, who says we need a planetary hospice to nurture ourselves to death, basically. And, of course, the assumption in hospice work is that this is a gentle process, where the reality is, is that most people alive today are going to go kicking and screaming. It might not be pretty. So my question is, what is the end game for either Latour or for facing the reality of what the Anthropocene as problematic as that term might be, means for us as, as a species on this planet. So anything you guys might want to offer um, playfully to answering that. Oh, sure. I'll give it a whirl. Um, yeah. Um, end game. I want, a, I want a question that this notion of end game. I, I actually think this is the beginning of history um, insofar as... Um, human beings now have a chance to realize all kinds of things about historical actors like squirrels, um, plutonium-239, um, cyclones, um, polar bears on icebergs, icebergs um, that they hadn't before. Um, and um, in some way, this is, this is the beginning of history, not the end of history. Um, and, um, and in that spirit, um, I like the idea of the kind of grief work that you're talking, speaking to in this notion of hospice. Um, but I'm not convinced that um, we are um, sort of nurturing ourselves to death, as it were. Um, I'm a little bit worried about that. I, I, of course, I don't know the context in which that sentence is, is spoken well enough to, to, to address it well. Um, but um, one of them might be um, a kind of cynical reason. Um, and I think that's the one thing that I get from Latour that, that I really like a lot, um, is his resistance to cynical reason, um, which has been the top sort of way of being right in the Anthropocene so far. In other words, I'm going to prove that I'm smarter than you because I can see through you. You're more transparent to me than I am to you, therefore I'm more right than you, right? That assumes that I can jump outside of things and see them perfectly, right? And the perfect seeing person um, is the one who generally says, we're all totally deluded and stuck in ideology except for the one who is saying this sentence. I, this sentence is exempted from the from the horrifying um, network of of, uh, of delusion, um, and I think what um, 
the notion that non-humans are part of social space actually gives us in the end is um, the way in which that cynical reason, this is a very long argument that I can't do right now, have you got five hours, um, collapses into the other alternative which is hypocrisy. Um, I'd rather be a hypocrite than a cynic because a cynic still hopes that if she or he vomits disgustingly enough, something might change. So the cynic is actually a hypocrite about her or his hypocrisy. We have a choice now that we know the things that we know about global warming. Um, we can either be straightforward hypocrites or hypocritical hypocrites, right? As Bill pointed out, every individual decision you make is a little bit lame. I drive a Prius. I know it's not going to save Earth. Neither will fitting wheels to a leaf blower and driving it around in a cynical gesture about how driving a Prius won't save Earth, right? So I'm a hypocrite right now. Um, I'm, I'm, we have entered an age of, of weakness, lameness, and hypocrisy, and that's totally awesome. Somebody else so I wanted to take us back to the question about the, um, the Anthropocene, if I may, because uh, one of the things that was very provocative for me in this, in this conversation is the question of decentering human agency and the way in which the, the, the primary way I have thought about and heard the Anthropocene used is to emphasize the, the human action as a driving force. So by, by, by really challenging that image, by giving us this, this uh, way of thinking about other actants as, uh, as, as critical forces here, I'd just like to ask you to reflect on the, the, I find this so powerful on the one hand and also so dangerous ethically. And it's just, that's the question that I am grappling with. If we decenter the issue of human agency, human responsibility, and all of that, which on the one hand I'm intellectually excited about, how does one also balance that with the ethical question of human imperialism? Is that directed at anyone in particular, or just the panel in general? Well, it was sparked, Tim, by your comments, but I'm happy to hear anyone, uh, you know, it's a, it was your comment that really got me excited about the question, but I'm happy to have anyone uh, who is well, interested I'll, I'll give Tim Thanks. the microphone in a second. Uh, the, the, uh, it's a good question, you know, this, the idea of decentering human agency, maybe it's uh, coming ter to terms with, uh, the uh, fact that our notions of agency have been uh, uh, problematic all along, uh, even in the pragmatic tradition, and, and that uh, our, our agency uh, always requires uh, multiple actants inside and outside to be. Uh, when you participate in something that is creative, uh, it doesn't really kind of follow from your agency, it proceeds through uh, agency uh, through it and comes out as a surprise or more often in, in a variety of relationships. And so, and so there has been a kind of a, uh, in, in, in discussions of freedom, there's a, been a background notion, both in negative and positive freedom, of kind of uh, uh, a, a, uh, a too strong a notion of agency. So this doesn't make agency disappear, it makes it become more modest 
and when it becomes more modest, then you are ready to hear and pay attention to uh, the multiple actants that it depends upon and other actants uh, that impinge upon the world and infuse us so that this, uh, the uh, mitochondria that are part of our being are part of our agency. Uh, and we can't be without them. Uh, so um, so I, I, I agree with you that, that to kind of deal with the, the age of the Anthropocene, we have, uh, we have major uh, questions about imperialism, but the, but the one thing to start with is to say, well, the United States is the country that made the largest contribution uh, to climate change and, has, and is the most resistant of the most uh, industrial countries uh, to doing anything about it, that's where the pressure should be first and foremost to take action. Not to wait until India and China take action, but to take action there. So when I think of the Anthropocene, I don't think, but I, I know that some people are seeing it that way. I don't think it shows that, well, we see that ourselves as we now once again see ourselves as the dominant creatures because we've had so many effects. But we didn't intend those effects. We intended other things altogether. And to me, it, 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 it helps us to see how we tend to be blind creatures, uh, blind to uh, what we're doing. I think that uh, today, uh, more than <laughs> Dewey, I need, or Dewey, I love Dewey too. I don't mean to disagree with Dan on that, but the name came up. Uh, I think we need Sophocles and, uh, to help us today uh, to see about how those minor voices in those plays where these big actors were uh, going, these minor voices had the pro most profound insights. Uh, so uh, uh, thank, uh, anyhow, I, I didn't answer your question, but uh, the, the decentered agency is utterly indispensable thing to think help to promote modesty in the human condition. I got a quote from Sophocles right, um, the, um, from a minor character. Um, it's, um, it's Hymen in um, um, Antigone, yeah? And um, he's, he's begging his dad not to do what he's about to do, you know, and he goes, you know, the point is to be like a willow tree, you have to be flexible, right? What makes you responsible? It's actually in the word, right? Responsible? In other words, human beings might not be nihilistic princes of darkness who are capable of snuffing out reality. They might actually be incredibly susceptible to other agents. In other words, you can't unthink the microbiome once you know there's all this stuff in you and around you that makes me a bit fat, you know. It's not me in particular. It's not even my choice to drink Coca-Cola, you know. Now I'm, very, now I'm susceptible to these beings. I didn't even know they existed before. You know, when I lived in Northern Cali, there's all these frogs living on my doorstep. What am I supposed to do about that? You know, in a, in a Latourian world where there are non-human agents that are also part of social space, everybody becomes this neurotic Woody Allen who's like, oh my God, I've got so many problems. I can't even figure it all out, you know. Um, and, 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 and there's a necessary irony, um, much, much more than postmodern irony in ecological awareness because of that. And so um, I think that um, Bill's talk actually gave me an idea that it's sort of like the micrological way, sort of analog way that you get um, towards responsibility, the little tiny things shouldn't be crushed, you know. Um, and that really um, it's an interesting paradox, isn't it? That as you, as you sort of bring out in your question, you know, the very moment at which we um, realize that there are non-human agents um, that are just as valid as us lot and that agency isn't specifically human 
we also know that we're a species in a non-teleological, non-Aristotelian sense. Um, we, we actually know um, that when we start our car, although we don't mean to, we're actually destroying Earth, you know, in, in some massively distributed way that we can't see or touch, but we can think, right? We can think it, but we can't see it or touch it. So there's this kind of incredible susceptibility to other beings and an incredible strangeness sort of a sudden about those other beings. And if I was going to sketch out an ethics there, it would probably involve what Alfonso Lingis talks about in the imperative, right? You see a burning cigarette butt in a sequoia forest and it wants to be put out. You sort of, like in the same way that a tennis racket wants you to hold it a certain way or a bottle wants you to hold it a certain way. In other words, perhaps um, we need to reframe what um, agency is. Perhaps it is precisely a kind of um, susceptibility to and responsiveness to other beings, you know, so that one thing that we can do with our thoughts is to try to make ourselves less allergic to those other beings, some of which are actually in us and are us, and some of which are actually also our thoughts, are also those other beings. So we have time for maybe one more question. I know you've been waiting patiently over there, so I'd like to give you a chance. Thank you. Uh, one of the aspects that's missing from this, uh, and I think an important aspect that's missing in this discussion of the Anthropocene is, is the role of, of modern economics, uh, because it clearly, uh, Bill Connolly mentioned political economy, but in some sense, uh, at least in terms of sort of classical political economy of Ricardo and Marx and even Adam Smith, Modern economics wants to call itself sort of value-free, model itself much more on the idea of physics and the natural sciences rather than the social and the moral sciences to which it belongs. And the consequences of that in terms of neoliberal economics around the world have been phenomenally destructive. So I haven't read Latour's Gifford lectures, but it's pretty clear that uh, if you're talking about agencies that have, at the moment, I'm sorry to say, an extremely destructive role, uh, it's certainly the, the modern economists who, uh, in their, as I joke, in their physics envy, uh, really fail to take up the, the moral and the ethical and ecological dimensions of their, of their discipline. And that linkage between economics and ethics and ecology is one that, with a few exceptions, Herman Daly, Gustav Speth, and others, is sort of unfortunately, at least in, in many, many universities in the United States, and unfortunately around the world, uh, largely neglected. Um, well, you, you're, I, I agree with your point entirely. Uh, the subtitle of The Fragility of Things is Self-Organizing Processes, Neoliberal Fantasies, uh, Democratic Activism. So it contains a critique of, of Hayek, because Hayek is supposed to be the guy who appreciates self-organizing processes. But it turns out that finally only pre uh, appreciates them in economic markets, but they're all over the place. And so, uh, so, so and one, one issue that I have with Latour uh, much of whose work I like, but one issue I have with him is the kind of the role of, of, uh, of neoliberalism and uh, these economic processes is not emphasized that much there, and it has to be brought into play. But, I, but then I excuse him because 
nobody can do everything. I mean, you know, we don't have enough, I guess we don't have enough microbes in us to kind of keep going So, uh, in all of these domains. But uh, the, if you're going to pay attention to the, the worries about the Anthropocene and the objections and difficulties in coming to terms with it politically and spiritually, uh, I would say that the, that, that the this alliance in the United States that was creatively formed between neoliberalism and, and the right edge of evangelicalism is the most, uh, uh, the biggest obstacle, the most dangerous obstacle, and the most, what should I say, uh, intransigent uh, obstacle. So uh, I agree with everything you say, and I wouldn't be surprised if Latour does too, but he doesn't, uh, in those lectures, at least I don't remember seeing that as an issue brought up. We have about two minutes if any of the other panelists would like to add something. I just have a quick one. You know, um, a moment of encouragement. You know, I've been very encouraged with the sort of turn toward agency in a, from a wide variety of disciplines. Uh, really, it's been very, very recent. And I think that, uh, frankly, a whole lot of the global environmental movement and a whole lot of other cultures kind of beat the Western academic world to the punch. Uh, in a very profound way, but this is a really salutary turn, and it's totally embedded in various ecological metaphysics of interconnection. It helps us to get over ourselves and to overturn this kind of human exceptionalism. H.T. and Betty Odom, in the la their last book, to, uh, was, uh, wrote a book called uh, A Prosperous Way Down, and I think that once you start to put those things together and you, you add uh, human moral imagination, you can begin to envision not an embrace, even a realistic one of the Anthropocene, but a retreat from uh, uh, a world that's dominated by our species. And I think that actually is capable, at least as a possibility, if we think medium and long term. All right. I think we need to... Okay, one, one couple time, quick one, sentences. One, one sentence. Go for it. Here's something we can all agree on. Let's try to f um, make a world such that huge corporations don't geoengineer the heck out of it. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. That's a great note to close on. Let me just begin by... Um, the cl my closing remarks by saying thanks all to all of you for coming. It's been a really great session. I've really enjoyed it. I want to thank all of our panelists for such engaging and provocative um, probings of Latour and especially Adrian for organizing this session and, and getting everyone to agree to come and to our panelists who aren't AAR members for you know, crossing that boundary and joining us here at our meeting. And thanks again to the Social Theory and Religion and the Religion and Ecology groups. And remember that the Social Theory and Religion uh, meeting, uh, business meeting will take place in the next 10 minutes. So please give everyone a round of applause.